theft abounded in the Soviet Union. And to curtail this, the communist leaders stationed guards at the various factories that were set up around their country. And the guards would be there to dissuade anyone from stealing from the factories. And the story is told that at one particular factory in Leningrad, it was a timber works factory, there was a guard stationed there. And one night, on his first night actually, he observed a factory worker leave the factory pushing a wheelbarrow with a sack in the wheelbarrow that looked like it had an object inside of it. So the guard stopped the factory worker, asked him what was inside of the sack, and the factory worker said, just sawdust and shavings. And the guard said, oh, listen, I wasn't born yesterday. I know there's something in that sack. Why don't you open it for me? factory worker opened the sack and out poured sawdust and shavings. So, so the guard let him go on his way. And every night, every night for months, this factory worker would exit the factory with a wheelbarrow and a sack that looked like it had something in it, but every time it was sawdust and shavings. This frustrated the guard who was stationed there. But he got to know this factory worker, and they became friends over time. And, and finally, one night, the, fact, the guard said to the factory worker, Listen, we're friends. We know each other. And I know you are taking something out of this factory. I just don't know what it is. But I tell you what, I will never turn you in if you'll just tell me what it is you're stealing. And the factory worker looked at him and smiled and said, Wheelbarrows. And the point is, it's very easy for us to be so distracted that we miss out on what's really important. You know, a distraction is anything that directs your attention away from that which you ought to be focused on. And a distraction can be detrimental. Just ask David, who was distracted by a woman bathing on her rooftop, and as a result, he found himself entangled in a series of sins that caused the Lord to be displeased with him and cost him the life of a child. Or, or ask Peter, who was so distracted by the winds and the waves when he was walking on the Sea of Galilee that he almost drowned. Or ask Martha, who the Bible says was distracted with much serving and as a result, she missed the opportunity to sit and listen at the Lord's feet. See, as we continue our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, we come to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, and we discover that he, along with those rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, faced numerous distractions. Distractions that had the potential to disrupt their construction project. But they successfully navigated those distractions, and by the time we get to the sixth, sixth chapter of Nehemiah, we find out that the wall was finished in 52 days. And since our ultimate goal is to serve the Lord without distraction, to use words penned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 35, we need to equip ourselves in the same way that Nehemiah did to combat the distractions that Satan will use to deter us from successfully completing our spiritual construction projects. And so this morning we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 and we're going to talk about distractions. 
because it's so easy for us to get distracted. And I'm certain it's so easy for Satan to use distractions to disrupt us. So let's start this morning by just looking at three distractions that appear in Nehemiah chapter 4. And we'll start with this one. It's the distraction of ridicule. Now, picking up from where we were last week, Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem. He's assembled the workers, and they're getting to work on this wall in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the wall around the city. And the first distraction that they're going to encounter in this whole process is the distraction of ridicule. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 with me. Now, when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, this may go unnoticed by us, but what's happening here is that Sam Ballot's using rhetorical questions to undermine the confidence in this project. First thing he does is he ridicules their, the, the, the workers' strength. When he rhetorically asks, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's inferring that they're too weak to rebuild the city's walls. He's probably referring to the size of their workforce, that there are just not that many of them. How are they going to rebuild this massive wall when there's so few of them working on it? And then, you'll notice, he ridicules their intelligence. Will they restore it for themselves? He rhetorically asks, are they capable of this? He's inferring that they were foolish to think that they could rebuild the wall all by themselves. Finally, he ridiculed their faith. When he rhetorically asked, will they sacrifice? It's as if he's saying, do they think they can build this wall on prayers and sacrifices alone? Don't they understand it's going to take manpower? And they don't have that. Ridicule and criticism. Tobiah chimes in and says, hey, if a fox jumps on that thing, it's going to fall down because it's so poorly constructed. The whole time... One after another, a statement is made in these first four verses that's making fun of the work that's being done in one way or another. Ridicule and criticism are not uncommon experiences for citizens of the kingdom. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, some Christians in the first century were enduring a hard struggle that included being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. When the author of Hebrews wrote about the persecution that first century Christians were enduring at that time, he included ridicule. And isn't that the type of persecution that we in, in, in the United States of America experience the most? Isn't that the form of persecution that in our freedom of religion country we face most often? Think about it. The persecution we tend to face comes in the form of criticisms regarding our beliefs about marriage and divorce or our beliefs about abortion or our beliefs about many other matters of morality. We get accused of intolerance and hatred because of our stance on homosexuality and women's roles in the church. 
We get mocked because of our choice to maintain sexual purity. Ridicule and criticism are part of the experience for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Satan can utilize ridicule effectively to distract us. Didn't he ultimately do that in the Garden of Eden? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, when he said, You will not surely die. He's telling Eve, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. There's a sense in which he planted in the mind of Adam and Eve a feeling of naivety. A feeling of naivety for listening to God. Oh, don't listen to him. He don't know what he's talking about. You're foolish to believe that you're actually going to die. What he's concerned about is that you're going to end up being like him if you eat of that fruit. He challenged and ridiculed their understanding of the situation to some degree. And so we have to be careful not to let ridicule derail us from our primary objective, as it potentially did Adam and Eve, and as it certainly attempted to do with Nehemiah. So one distraction Nehemiah faced, one distraction that we will face is the distraction of ridicule, but we also face off with the distraction of conflict. You can see it very clearly in Nehemiah's situation, because in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, we read this. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the, the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. In other words, Sanballat and company threatened to make war to prevent this wall from being repaired. Now, why did they care so much about preventing the construction of Jerusalem's walls? Well, it's because Jerusalem's interests conflicted with the interests of their kingdoms. Sanballat ruled Samaria, the territory just north of Jerusalem. And then Tobiah the Ammonite ruled Ammon, the territory just to the east of Jerusalem. And then you have Geshem, the Arab. He, he ruled Arabia, the territory that lay south of Jerusalem. So north, east, south, all around Jerusalem were these other kingdoms ruled by these other guys. And they didn't want Jerusalem to rise up and invade their territory. They're concerned about their kingdom interests, not the interests of the kingdom. And I want you to think about it. When it comes to our lives, conflicts arise when kingdoms clash, particularly when God's kingdom clashes with our own personal kingdoms. See, we face the distraction of conflict when we decide that our kingdoms and our territories are more important than God's kingdom. And so instead of focusing on God's will for our lives, we get distracted by trying to protect the interests of our little individual kingdoms. Maybe it's the kingdom of your work, or maybe it's the kingdom of your relationships, or maybe it's the kingdom of your finances, or the kingdom of your entertainment, or the kingdom of your rest, or the kingdom of your personal liberties, or the kingdom of your hobbies. Regardless of which kingdom it is, whenever you elevate one of your kingdoms and your territories above the kingdom of God, 
then you've created a distraction. Because Jesus said we can only have one master, and he instructed us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we have to decide which kingdom is going to receive priority in my life. And Satan can utilize kingdom conflict effectively to distract us. Didn't he do that with Abraham? Abraham and Sarah weren't able to have kids, yet God had promised Abraham that his very own son would be his heir in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 4. As the the days and the weeks, the months, even the, the years passed by with no heir via Sarah, Abraham decided that seeking what was best for the kingdom of his lineage was more important than seeking what was best for the kingdom of God. So he agreed to his wife's offer of using a surrogate mother named Hagar. But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's design. That wasn't the way God had intended it to happen. And it created some nasty conflict for Abraham. So we have to be careful not to let our kingdom interests and the conflicts that arise from them derail us from the primary objective. But there is one third one third distraction I want you to notice that Nehemiah faced. And it's the distraction of negativity. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10, this doesn't involve Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem or any other character. It's all about the wall workers. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In other words, what you have here is poetic lament. The individuals who are working on the wall are expressing their feelings of inadequacy, of weakness, of melancholy. The text indicates that the workers had reached a point where they were discouraged to the degree that they were singing about the fact that they would never finish the wall. They've hit a pessimistic roadblock. Pessimism is dangerous. It spreads faster than optimism and has a crippling effect on those with whom it comes in contact. Pessimism has the ability to cause a work stoppage. And I think that's why Paul was adamantly opposed to pessimism. If you just go to the book of Philippians, he instructs the church there to do all things without complaining. He tells them to be anxious for nothing, and he reminds them that one can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. The message of Philippians is an anti-negativity letter because Paul understands the damage it can do. And Satan understands that too because he can utilize negativity to effectively distract us. Didn't he do that with the nation of Israel? It just took a a, a few guys reporting on how big and how strong and how well fortified the residents of Canaan were for the entire nation to start complaining to the point that some of them wanted to usurp Moses and lead a return to Egypt. Numbers chapters 13 and 14. So we need to do everything in our power to be careful to not let the 
the distraction of negativity derail us from our primary objective? There's at least three distractions here in Nehemiah chapter 4. There's arguably more. There are distractions that can find themselves in our lives as well. But that's not the emphasis of today's lesson. I just wanted you to be able to see that there were distractions that the, the, uh, re- the exiles who had returned to rebuild the wall were dealing with. What I really want you to see in the text today is how Nehemiah and company dealt with their distractions. Because we all know we're going to face distractions. You're dealing with them right now. Some of you are getting alerts on your phone that are causing you to want to be distracted. I mean, you've got to see if your player is going to play today in fantasy football, right? I'm looking at this corner back here, by the record, for the record. You've got the distraction of your own fatigue as Stan Burnett lets out a big yawn. <laughs> You've got the distraction of your hungry belly. And where are you going to go eat today? What buffet are you going to line up? for lunch. You've got the distraction, parents, of who won't sit still, who are bored, who are agitating you. And you've got the distraction of this horrible preacher standing in front of you who you know is only halfway through and time is ticking. We've got distractions. How do we deal with them? I want you to notice Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Look at verse 9 because I think verse 9 sets us up for a great strategy on combating distractions. It says, We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah summarizing how they're going to handle Geshem and Tobiah and Sanballat and the distractions they in particular keep throwing at them. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them. See, in this verse, I see two strategies for dealing with distractions. And honestly, I'm not really trying to educate you on how to deal with the distractions you're you're facing as you sit in the pew today. I'm talking about the big distractions, the distractions that are going to interrupt your spiritual construction. The distractions that are going to derail you and knock you off of the straight and narrow path. Those are the distractions we're really worried about, not the ones that are keeping you from paying attention in this sermon, but the ones that will cause you to lose your soul. That's the real distractions. And here's the strategy for it. It's two parts. First part, you can neutralize distractions by communicating with God because that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah, all throughout his letter, He is emphasizing prayer. Have you noticed that? Probably not, because we haven't detailed that very much. But if you go back to the first chapter, when Nehemiah finds out that Jerusalem is in disrepair, he spends four months in prayer and fasting, according to verses 4 through 11. When the time came for him to speak to King Artaxerxes and, and make a request of the king. Do you know what he does? You can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 4. He stops and says a prayer before he speaks to the king. And then when the first distraction arose, here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, look at what he prayed. Hear, O, God, o our God, for we are despised 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah, when the first distraction pops up, the first thing he does is he prays because Nehemiah understands that communication with God is essential to eliminating distractions. But how does prayer aid in neutralizing distractions? I want you to consider a passage that doesn't directly mention prayer, but does allude to what prayer accomplishes, and it's James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now think about the last part there in verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. What is our most effective means of drawing near to God? It's prayer. And so James is calling on us to have an intimate relationship to God, to draw near to Him, and conversely, He's going to draw near to us. Now I want you to think about all the instructions that appear here for just a moment. Because what I notice in in James's instruction is a collaboration. It seems that James is saying that as I submit to God, I will simultaneously draw near to Him. And the natural byproduct of me drawing closer to God is that I'm going to resist the devil. If I'm submitting to the Lord and therefore drawing near to Him, the closer I'm getting to God, the more capable I'm going to become at resisting the devil. And the more I resist the devil, the more he's going to leave me alone to try to find somebody who is a more likely candidate to influence. As I draw near to God, I am intentionally distancing myself from the one who causes distractions. So if you want a a strategy for neutralizing distractions, that sounds like a pretty good one to me. Start with drawing close to God. And that means communicating with him consistently like Nehemiah. Think about the men in the Bible who get titles like friend of God. People like Moses. People like Abraham. They get those titles because of an intimate relationship with him that we can only have if we're consistently communicating with him like Nehemiah. So that's part one of a strategy for neutralizing distractions. There is a part two from verse 9. Nehemiah in chapter 4 verse 9 says, We prayed and we set a guard. They came up with a defense strategy. That's the second part. Nehemiah neutralized distractions by implementing a defense system. Now you'll notice I don't have any verses on this slide because we're going to bear this out. Because Nehemiah's defense system emphasized three things. First, it emphasized watchfulness. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 in particular, Nehemiah says, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Earlier, back in verse 13, We're told that in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in the open places, Nehemiah stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. What we find out between these two pieces of passage of Scripture, Nehemiah chapter 
4 verse 13 and verses 16 and 17 is that Nehemiah intentionally placed people to protect the city at its vulnerable spots. In those locations where the city was the most, most vulnerable, the, pl- the access points that were the least protected, that's where he set up extra protection. The takeaway for us is that if you want to neutralize distractions, then you have to protect your access points. And the most vulnerable access point for your life is your mind. What you allow in through your mind will directly correlate to what you allow out through your lifestyle. In other words, what you produce is just a reconstitution of what you consume. And so if you want to neutralize distractions in your life, then you need to filter what your mind is consuming. That's where Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 comes into play, where we are instructed to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, and so on. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, God gave us a breakdown of the things our mind should consume. And so I want you to consider for just a moment, reflect on the past week. What TV shows have you watched this past week? What media sources have you consumed this past week, whether it's newspapers or or, uh, news shows or news radio? What songs have you listened to this past week? What images and posts have you scrolled through this past week? What articles have you read this past week? And as you reflect on those things, do they fit the filter of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8? Let me read those categories again. Are the shows and the music and the articles and the images that you consumed this past week, are they worthy of whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Do they fit those categories? Because that's the filter that God has said you should run everything through. And if it doesn't fit in those categories, don't consume it. If we want to have a defense system that will neutralize distractions, it's got to start with what we think. And developing that kind of mental filter can only occur when you set your mind on the things that are above not on the things that are on the earth, as Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2 says. But you know what? The defense system needs more than just, what, uh, just watchfulness here because Nehemiah's dis- defense system also emphasized readiness. If you look at verse 17 and 18, the end of verse 17 and, and into verse 18, this is what we read. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Now think about this. Nehemiah's plan was for each individual sword to be readily accessible. And in order for us to fend off distraction, we must have our swords readily accessible. And hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. Because Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 refers to God's word as the sword of the Spirit. But when I say that we should have God's Word readily accessible, I don't just mean that we should have a printed Bible within our reach at all times, or we should have the Bible app on the home screen of our smartphones. What I really mean is that we should become so familiar with with the text of Scripture 
that we don't even need a physical or digital copy of it to be reminded of what it says. The Israelites were instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 18 to lay up God's word in their heart and in their soul. David declared in Psalm chapter 119 and verse 1 that he had stored up God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against him. Now think about that. David said, here's my, my strategy for not sinning against you. I'm going to lay up your word in my heart. I'm going to memorize what your word says. And this was a day and age where they didn't have printed texts of the Old Testament that they could take home. Gutenberg hadn't come around yet. And so the way you had God's word with you at all times was because you memorized it. We're so blessed. We're so blessed that we can have printed Bibles in abundance. You've got some tucked away in the pews here that maybe get pulled out once in a blue moon. The majority of you have a phone that you can pull it out and you can access any English translation you want of God's Word. That's a great privilege to have God's Word that readily accessible. But it came at the cost of memorization. We just don't ingrain God's Word like we used to unless you come to BK520 tonight. 520. There is an inherent benefit to memorizing God's Word because isn't that how Jesus tackled sin? When the distractions came from Satan out in the wilderness, how did he respond? He quoted Scripture. He had it within him so that he knew it and it was there readily accessible for him to be able to fight off those attacks with the sword of the Spirit. If you want a defense system for neutralizing distractions, not only do you have to have the mental filter that Scripture talks about, but you also, like these wall builders, need to have your sword readily accessible so that you can pull it out at a moment's notice when temptation rears its ugly head. So Nehemiah's defense system emphasized watchfulness, it emphasized readiness, and finally, it emphasized togetherness. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. In other words, Nehemiah instituted a policy that when the trumpet blew, everyone would assemble at that location because Nehemiah understood that there is strength in numbers and therefore the people... They needed to be, to, to be together. They needed to assemble to combat the distractions quickly. And what we learn from Nehemiah is that assembling is essential to protect ourselves spiritually. In like manner, if we want to protect our lives from the distractions of Satan, we have to assemble with fellow believers. That's why Christians are instructed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, to not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, assembling together has an offensive function. It stimulates or stirs up Christian behavior, particularly love and good works. But togetherness, assembling with one another, also has a defensive function. It prevents the hardening of our hearts. As Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 points out, See, if you want to neutralize distractions in your life, then you have to prioritize assembling with like-minded people, with people 
who have the same outlook, the same perspective, the same mission. Nehemiah had a defense strategy. A defense strategy that emphasized watchfulness, readiness, and togetherness. If you want to fend off the distractions that can cost you your soul, you need the same strategy. You know, the story is told of two paddle boats on the Mississippi River back in the 1800s. Both boats left Memphis about the same time and were traveling down the river to New Orleans. As they traveled side by side, sailors from one vessel made a few remarks about the slow pace of the other. Words were exchanged, challenges were made, and a race inevitably began. One boat began falling behind the other because it didn't have enough coal for the steam engines. There's plenty of coal on board to make the trip, but they didn't pack enough coal on board to have a race where they're firing the engines as hot as they can. So as that boat dropped back, one young sailor took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. And when the sailors saw that the supplies burned as well as the coal did, they fueled their boat with the material they had been assigned to transport, and they ended up winning the race. But they burned up all their cargo in the process. And the point is this. We can become so distracted by what's going on around us that we forget what we're here to do. And our mission, as I said at the outset, is to serve the Lord without distraction, as Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. What distractions are you dealing with today? We all have them. We all face them. Because Satan knows if he can distract us, he might get us. I don't know the distractions that are going on in your life, but I know they're there. And hopefully by looking at Nehemiah chapter 4 today, we can find a strategy for neutralizing them. Because the one thing you don't want to happen is for your distractions to take you off of course, to get you off of that straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. So today, as we're gathered here, you're encouraged to assess whether or not there's a distraction that needs to be removed. And if there is, we encourage you to do so while together we stand and sing. Hey.